morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Podstetrics of Pregnancy Pod. I'm Kayla. And I'm Evan. And this is episode seven, and in episode seven is around induction of labor. Welcome, everyone. Yeah, hi. <laughs> so today what we're going to be talking about is obviously, as we mentioned, induction of labor. Um, and as we have been doing in the past episodes, we're going to start off with a case study. Before we do that, though, let's start off with a quick medical disclaimer. So as we say at the start of every episode, neither of us are medical professionals. And so any information given during this podcast does not constitute as medical advice. If you do have any queries or concerns, please contact a licensed health professional. So as always, we'll start with a case. Yep. So Julie is a G1P0, currently 41 plus six weeks and is approaching post-term pregnancy. Julie has experienced an uneventful pregnancy with no recorded complications. Julie is informed that after 42 weeks, she will require an induction of labor. Julie is booked into the hospital and is admitted. The obstetrician performs a vaginal exam to ascertain her bishop score, and the result is a four. She has a balloon catheter inserted overnight to aid with the dilation of her cervix. The catheter is removed and the VE repeated, and the bishop score is now seven. So obviously there's a lot going on in that case definition, Kayla. So we really need to define that. Of course there is. You wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start off with an induction of labor. So what is an induction of labor? And this is really where we want to initiate labor before the normal spontaneous onset occurs. And really the aim of an induction of labor is to allow a woman to have a normal vaginal delivery. So it's generally performed when the risk of continuing the pregnancy outweighs the benefits or if the woman personally requests it. And this is called a social induction. So some other reasons why we might perform um, an induction of labor is a prolonged pregnancy, so above 42 weeks, a PROM, which is pre-labor rupture of membranes, preeclampsia or gestational diabetes mellitus. And this is usually done at 38 weeks. So another term that you might have heard thrown around uh, that kind of goes along with induction of labor is augmentation of labor. And augmentation of labor is really talking about the enhancement of uterine activity in a woman whose labor has already begun. All right. So that's the key difference between the two. That makes sense. So Kayla, why do we need an induction of labor? And how do we actually decide if a woman needs an induction of labor? Well, here we're talking about, well, the first case is, as Evan mentioned before, we're talking about planned inductions, and this is quite rare, uh, but here we're talking about a social induction, otherwise known as an elective induction Yeah, and so labor. I guess an example of this is um, a woman and her partner might be, you know, in the army or the navy or the air force, and they might be going off um, on a tour, and so the labor needs to occur before they're deployed. Yeah. Other reasons include women is approaching post-term pregnancy, and another reason is that a woman is of South Asian, Southeast Asian background. So at 39 weeks, a woman of Southeast Asian background is two times more likely to have a stillbirth compared to an Australian woman at the same time. Yeah, and so this is a reason why we might induce a woman who's of Southeast Asian descent at this time, really, to avoid those complications. But I suppose the most important reason why we do an induction of labor is a delayed first stage. Yeah, so let's quickly go through a summary of the pathway we take to decide if we need to ripen the cervix or augment labor. Yeah, and really what we're talking about here is, you know, is the cervix ready for labor um, or does the cervix need a little bit of help or are there not enough contractions or are the contractions not strong enough and do we need to augment labor? Yep, so what we want to look at is 38 weeks of pregnancy and at this time usually women are going in weekly anyway. Uh, but in an uncomplicated pregnancy... If the woman is of Southeast Asian descent, we begin monitoring, and this monitoring usually involves CTG monitoring as well as um, amniotic fluid index, mm -hmm. and this occurs two times a week. If she is not of Southeast, Southeast Asian descent, 
we still have the weekly visits. At 40 weeks, we perform something called membrane sweeping or a stretch and sweep, and that is generally offered to women. At, 40, at 41 weeks, we begin that surveillance and we start to consider an induction of labor. Here we perform a vaginal exam and here we obtain a bishop score and that's something that Evan's going to go through a little bit later. At this stage, we also offer and organize an induction of labor and again, we offer the CTG and the AFI bi-weekly. Upon the vaginal exam, if the cervix is unfavorable, we perform something known as cervical ripening and there are two ways that we can do this. That is either through the administration of prostaglandin or through the insertion of a balloon catheter. Mm-hmm. However, if the cervix is favorable, we perform an, an ARM and we administer something called syntocinon. Yeah, and an ARM is an artificial rupture of membranes. Yes. Great. So that's really a, a summary of everything that we're going to be going through now. So next, we'll just quickly move on to the contraindications of induction of labor. So these these are occasions when we would not do an induction of labor. So one of them is placenta previa. And this is when the placenta is near or is covering the cervical opening. This is important because the placenta is a highly vascularized structure, so a lot of blood being supplied to the placenta. And the last thing you want is for it to be covering the opening of the placenta, having baby pushing on that, and then having a catastrophic bleed. So it's catastrophic to both mum and bubs. Yeah, so it's catastrophic to mum because mum loses her blood volume. It's catastrophic to bubs because bubs gets its blood from mum. Oh, bubs. (laughs) So the next one we have is vasoprevia. And vasoprevia is essentially when the fetal vessels are close to or covering that same opening, the cervical os. Yeah, and if something were to go wrong with the fetal vessels, obviously that would be catastrophic for baby. Yeah. Another one is malpresentation. So again, we discussed this in episode five, was it? Yeah, it was five. Stages of labor, yeah. So we talk about things like transverse lie as well as brow presentation or breech presentation. Mm -hmm. And obviously if the baby is lying transverse, then the baby's lying horizontally. And no matter how many contractions you have, baby's not going to come out. No, no. no. Um, another contraindication of uh, induction of labor is a previous classical uterine incision. And this is essentially when a cut is made in the upper part of the ure- uterus horizontally. And the reason for this is that you could get a uterine scar rupture. Yeah, it increases the chance of that scar yeah. rupture you know, by a lot. Um, now we move on to the pitogram. So I guess, what is the pitogram? And the pitogram is basically something on paper that allows us to monitor the progression of the first stage of labor. And we usually start this following the latent phase. So let's just remind our listeners again of what the first stage of labor is. So it's from the diagnosis of labor to full cervical dilation. So that's at 10 centimeters. And we start the pitogram in the active part of the first part of labor, not in the latent part. And it's a really important development because it allows for cervical dilation of a woman um, and other factors which we're going to go through to be compared about the norm. So that is the average woman of the same parity during labor. And this really lets us know if a woman is progressing according to plan. It's easier if we understand that the pitogram can be divided into five main sections. Yeah. So the first section is the maternal assessment. So what we look at in mum is her blood pressure, her temperature, her respiration, her reflexes, as well as heart rate. Mm -hmm. When we look at bubs, however, we're looking at fetal heart rate, and then we want to consider amniotic fluid. So here we're really questioning other membranes intact. Is the fluid clear? Is the fluid blood stained or is it meconium stained? Mm -hmm. Stained. (laughs) Yes. So next now we move on to the labor assessment. So here we're feeling for contractions. So we're feeling for the strength of the contractions and their duration and the time in between the contractions. We're also palpating the abdomen and this is really to ascertain the position of baby. 
we're also feeling for the cervical dilation and the descent. And this is done looking at fifths above the pelvic brim. And here we're really talking about engagement. And if the fifths above the pelvic brim is a little bit confusing, I'd definitely go back to episode five and have a listen. Another thing that we look at are just general investigations. And one of them is the urine analysis, where we look at the amount of urine. And another one is we reanalyze blood tests that were performed prior to the induction of labor. Yeah, and these can be things like a full blood examination, um, a urine and electrolytes and, and, and things like that. Yep. So moving on now to the fourth uh, fourth part of the pytogram, and that's the vaginal examination. And we also went through that in episode five. And here we're looking at the cervical effacement and the length of the cervix, the position of the cervix. So is the cervix located anteriorly towards the belly or posteriorly towards the bum? Uh, the consistency of the cervix, so how the cervix feels, the membranes, and again, how they are before, are they intact, are they blood-stained, are they mech-stained, um, what the presentation is, so can I feel baby's head or can I feel baby's bum, um, and then the position of baby. And here we're really feeling for kaput, so the head um, for molding, and this is when baby is passing through a narrow, constrained space, um, and those fontanelles are starting to come closer to each other or possibly overlap. And then the station, because we're looking at engagement. On the pytogram itself, we have two lines that are drawn. The first line indicates the normal progression of labor. And this is approximately one centimeters an hour of cervical dilation. And we start drawing this line at the end of the latent phase. Then, four hours to the right of that line, we draw another line that's drawn parallel. And this line really separates women into two groups. And really here, it's all about the rate of cervical dilation. So is it greater than or equal to one centimeter of dilation an hour, or is it less than this? One thing to quickly mention as well is that it's important to recognize that the World Health Organization's standard pytogram does not differentiate between a nulliparous woman and a multiparous woman. And that's really important because the rates at which dilation occurs and the rate at which labor occurs is different. And this is when we have the clinical experience of the obstetrician and the midwife that comes into play. So again, that line that we've drawn that's four hours um, to the to the right um, of our initial line, we call this the action line. And when the woman, or should I say, not when the woman, if the woman reaches the action line, what it represents is a delay in the stage of labor. So if the woman does reach this line, then the midwives and the obstetricians start to think about things that they need to put in place to improve the progress of labor. So generally, if the cervix dilates for less than half a centimeter every hour, we call this a delay in pregnancy. So next, let's talk, let's talk about the Bishop score. So you would have heard us mention Bishop score when we read, it, read the case study out to you. So following a general patient assessment, the main thing that we want to do is determine this score. And a really cool way to remember this by that Evan told me the other week was called PEDS. PEDS being spelled P-E-D-S. And this stands for consistency, position, effacement, dilation, and station. And once we've measured all this together, we get a score. If the score is greater than six, the cervix is favorable. If the score is less than six, then we may need to ripen the cervix. And there's really two ways, two main ways to prepare the cervix. And they can be split into or divided into hormonal ways or through mechanical ways. So when we're looking at the hormonal ways we can prepare the cervix, we're looking at the prostaglandin gel. This gel we don't like using in women that have had previous cesareans. And that's because it increases the rate of uterine rupture fourfold. 
We also can't give oxytocin or syntocin, as you would have heard me mention before, uh, within a certain time frame, specifically within six hours of administering this gel. It should also be avoided in women with asthma, liver or renal disease, as well as a glaucoma. Did I pronounce that right? You did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now we move on to mechanical ways of induction of labor. So the mechanical way of ripening the cervix. And really the first line is the balloon catheter. Now the balloon catheter is just as effective as hormonal treatment, but doesn't have so many um, kind of rules behind it really. So generally the catheter or the balloon catheter is first line and women might actually get to go home after the catheter is inserted. And this is really in women who either live close to the hospital, have a reliable way of getting to the hospital and would prefer to be at home who have an uncomplicated pregnancy and who have been given really clear instructions of, of when to return. But the major disadvantage of the balloon catheter is that it's quite uncomfortable. Another way that we can mechanically perform an induction of labor is through an amniotomy, otherwise known as an artificial rupture of membranes. This procedure is performed using an amni hook and that sounds scary. It's not really scary. <laughs> uh, and this essentially, this it's literally like a thin stick this is the only way i know how to describe it it's like a thin stick with a little hook at the end curl at the end yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this hook is used to rupture membranes if the membranes are accessible upon vaginal examination this procedure can bring on labor by itself but what we often do is administer oxytocin or what we call syntocin on once the membranes have been ruptured it is really important that an infant be delivered the procedure involves the release of the amniotic fluid artificial rupture of membranes and so it places mum and bubs in a scenario where infection may occur yeah and now i suppose we move on to the street uh, the stretch and sweep so really here we're looking at women who are approaching post-term dates and that's 40 to 41 weeks in a nullip and 41 weeks for a multip so this is not really used if we're doing an emergency induction of labor and the way that this is done is it's using a gloved finger to separate the fetal membranes from the lower uterine segment so it's the insertion of one or two fingers into the cervix and through the use of a circular motion, we're trying to detach the bottom membranes of the lower uterine segment of the uterus. And really by doing this, we're encouraging the release of prostaglandins and this is what accelerates the onset of labor. So again, generally it's performed after 40 weeks. Most studies show that there's actually no significant difference in the number of women who have done this procedure, procedure and then proceeded into labor within a week. So it's thought to reduce the incidence of the formal induction of labor, which is why it's done. And although it's an uncomfortable procedure, it's been thought that the benefits, it's been thought that the benefits that you receive from doing the procedure far outweigh the harms. Beautiful. So now we want to go into augmentation of labor. And this is really once labor has started to push labor along further to eventually be able to give birth in, in a natural, in a kind of a natural setting. So the way that we do this is we administer syntocinin and we do this intravenously. So concentrations of syntocinin given intravenously may be increased or decreased throughout labor. And that is determined via the measuring and monitoring of contractions. So what we want is four to five contractions every 10 minutes. And the way that we do this again is sitting by mom's bed, having our hand on her belly and trying to feel for these contractions. So these contractions should last for approximately 60 seconds. They shouldn't exceed 90 seconds and there should be a one minute minimum between contractions. Syntocinon is given intravenously, started off slowly, then increased every 30 minutes depending on the strength and the number of contractions. 
And this is actually performed via a well-defined set of protocols that the health service uses. Contraindications to the use of syntocinin intravenously include previous uterine scar and grand multiparity greater than five births. Okay, so now we're kind of approaching the end of the episode. Let's just try and do a quick summary from the top of the dome. Oh, God. (laughs) So, So we've got a woman that's coming in that's indicated for induction of labor. And now we need to assess, is the cervix ripe? Is the cervix favorable? Or do we need to help with ripening of the cervix? Or do we need to augment labor with contractions? So the main way that we can do this is we need to figure out the Bishop's score. So after figuring out the Bishop's score, which is which we use the mnemonic call peds, so consistency, position, effacement, dilation, and station, we get a score. The score, if it's less than six, then the cervix is unfavorable. And we can ripen the cervix using two main methods. So we can use hormonal, which is our prostaglandin gel, and we can use mechanical, which is our balloon catheter. And the balloon catheter is preferred. If the, if the bishop score is above six, then we know that the cervix is favorable, and that's when we'll be going to administer oxytocin IV. We want to artificially rupture membranes. That's the bit I if forgot. If they have not been ruptured, yes. Perfect. Yeah, and that's a really quick summary of the induction of labor. So I guess what are we going to be covering next week, Kayla? So basically next week we're going to be talking about an, how to approach an OSCE on the induction of labor. I know that this is something that, it, well, one, it's going to be really complicated, but it's really directed to our medical students who are listeners and our student midwives into how to perform an OSCE in this sort of scenario with this sort of topic. Yeah, and that's something that we're hoping to supplement our episodes with uh, weekly, so an approach to the OSCE. Yeah, beautiful. And that's about it, guys. So once again... Uh, you can find us on Linktree forward slash Podstetrics. <laughs> yep. um, and you can also find us at Podstetrics on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yeah, as well as our streaming platforms, Apple Podcasts, Apple Music, Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. Yes, Spotify and CastBox. Thank you very much. Yeah, so thank you very much for listening, guys, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe. Take care. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Look after yourselves. Mm-hmm.